Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Today, we continue our coverage of the COVID-19 crisis, and we focus on the issue of inequality. Many studies have recently come out suggesting that racial and ethnic minority groups suffer a disproportionate amount of burden of illness and death during this COVID-19 crisis, and recent reports have also revealed how big businesses are actually taking up loans designed for small businesses, which raised the question whether the fiscal stimulus would actually end up leading to greater inequality after the crisis is over. And certainly we cannot attribute those phenomena simply due to the virus itself. And they're certainly actually because of the underlying structural fractures of the American society, the long ignored problems of inequality or racial earning gaps that we've been seeing for decades. So today on the show, we really hope to tackle some of those difficult issues head on. Uh, and I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Elora de Renancourt, uh, who is an incoming assistant professor of economics and public policy at UC Berkeley. And she is currently a postdoc researcher at Princeton's economics department. I met Elora when I was uh, at a dinner event in my residential college this past spring. Uh, she gave a fascinating presentation on her research in the intersection between the Great Migration, uh, minimum wage, uh, economic history. Uh, she does such fascinating work on inequality that I feel compelled uh, to bring her to our show and ask her to talk about issues related to inequality, her own research, and her thoughts on the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, so thanks so much for joining me remotely, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so why don't we just start with a very broad general um, kind of question. Can you speak a little bit about your interest in economics and, you know, specifically in the intersection of uh, migration, labor economics, economic history? Uh, what do you research on? Absolutely. Um, so uh, just to speak directly kind of to my interest in the impact of the Great Migration, the long run effect it has had on upward mobility, uh, and particularly the racial gap in upward mobility. Um, a few years ago when I was in graduate school, there were these maps kind of hitting the front page of the New York Times called, you know, the different lands of opportunity in the United States. And these maps were coming out of the research of Raj Chetty, who was a professor at Harvard at the time, he then moved to Stanford and then moved back um, to Harvard. But his work and his with his collaborat collaborators was really showing uh, from detailed tax return data how different the patterns in upward mobility were across the US. And I had had training as an economic historian looking at historical phenomena in the US. And looking at those maps, I noticed two things immediately. One is that the US South was a region of concentrated low upward mobility. And uh, then there were these pockets of low mobility in urban areas in the north and west of the United States. So looking at that map, it was hard to ignore the role of race. Um, and in particular, I was struck by these pockets of very low mobility in places like Chicago, Baltimore, Los Angeles, New York. These cities were um, you know, from what I could tell, lined up pretty well with the destinations of Black migrants from the South to the North during the Great Migration. And 
that immediately sparked a question for me of, well, what, what happened? What went wrong? Because at the time, in the middle of the 20th century, when millions of African-Americans were leaving the South, they were moving to the promised land, a place where you were more likely to achieve parity with uh, white Americans, which was the North or the non-South, broadly speaking. So what happened in the intervening years that these are now among uh, locations with the worst upward mobility for, it turns out, Black families? Um, so that's kind of how I got interested in that topic and then quickly realized I bit off more than I could chew and I'm you know, still kind of teasing out the, uh, the story there. Uh, so in your research, you found that, you know, the, the great migration cities are no longer this kind of promised land that have the most upward mobility. And as migration continued, uh, the, the outcome for black household actually worsened, whereas the, the outcomes for white household didn't change much. So uh, and, and the results were especially bad for for black men. Would, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your specific um, results and the interesting results that you found that are kind of contradictory to traditional beliefs? Absolutely. So um, the the Great Migration, as I mentioned, it was this massive internal movement. I often called it in talks the largest natural experiment in moving to opportunity in U.S. history. So something like six million African-Americans left the South. They moved to cities like Baltimore, Chicago, Detroit, etc., when they were in their heyday, so booming industrial locations. Um, and uh, as I mentioned today, they rank among the worst places for Black families to raise kids. I was interested in understanding how the migration itself may have altered the trajectory of upward mobility in the North. And um, in order to answer that question, I leveraged the fact that migration patterns were kind of set very strongly by um, families following members of their community from specific southern uh, hometowns and counties to specific northern des destinations, which meant that patterns in southern migration driven by southern economic factors, for example, places that were specialized in cotton and cotton was uh, mechanizing, so there was job loss in those areas, those experienced more outmigration uh, compared to other southern counties, and those that experienced um, investment during World War II in terms of war contracts and building for the war, those retained migrants. So based on where people had kind of ended up from specific communities in the South, those destinations in the North experienced differential growth in their Black population during this critical period, um, which was between 1940 and 1970, in the change in their Black population. Um, but some locations experience very drastic changes in, the, um, in their Black population, so much so that you could say the racial identity of those cities was changing. These um, historically uh, homogeneously white cities in the US or only moderately diverse were becoming much more diverse. Um, and what I noticed was that when I look at um, the returns from growing up in different cities in the northern U.S. today, um, the returns are lower in places that experienced historical Black migration during the Great Migration. Um, and those differences in upward mobility across northern cities, um, it, it is not driven by the kinds of families that were moving in. So, for example, you can imagine these are 
definitely relatively poor families from the South. Um, they might be families that are less able to kind of help their kids climb up uh, the opportunity ladder. But this is not what's driving the, the, the change in mobility in the North. In fact, if anything, it seems like the families leaving the South were what we call positively selected. They were kind of at their ceiling for where um, they wanted their kids, what kind of education they wanted their kids to have. In the mid 20th century, there weren't really public high schools that black children could even attend. So moving north was one of the ways some of these families got around that. Rather, it looks as though these locations, these destination locations changed in terms of um, the behavior of white incumbent households that were already living there and in the quality of the urban environment. So what I observe is both an increase in white flight from shared urban neighborhoods that they would be sharing with the incoming black migrants and withdrawing their kids from uh, public schools and rolling them into private schools at higher rates. And at the same time, black families starting to get concentrated in the public school system. And then in terms of the quality of the urban environment, I see that in great migration cities today, um, urban murder rates and crime rates are higher and local governments in these metropolitan areas have basically specialized in one form of public service, which is in police services. Um, and so that's the area where I see public spending has shifted in these locations. And um, unsurprisingly, incarceration rates are also higher in these locations. And the criminal justice system in the US has very disproportionate effects on one particular subgroup, which is black men, they are incarcerated at much higher rates. So you can kind of imagine that these places, these locations built up their um, kind of policing capacity and in incarceration infrastructure. And as incarceration rates rose nationally, this, these are the places where we really see that policy being carried out. That affects black men um, and affects black men growing up in these locations in terms of what they're exposed to as kids or as young adults and that has downstream effects on where they end up in the income distribution. Um, I don't see any sort of similar effects for white men and women growing up in these locations, and that contributes to an exacerbation of the racial gap in upward mobility in these former Great Migration cities. So it seems that when Black people moved into those cities, uh, urban environment deteriorated, segregation went up, schools with white people, uh, with only white people went up, much because of um, white people's response to that and also local policy uh, responses, such as, you know, increasing uh, investment on police forces, which means that the, the, the cards were really stacked against black people and black men later in, in the 80s and the 90s. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think you also wrote in your paper that in addition to better understanding specific policies in locations that contribute to intergenerational mobility, we would also need a, a more concerted effort aimed at reducing disparities within locations, meaning that I, I would assume, are, are you saying that uh, policy responses cannot just be uh, considered in, in one dimension, but rather we have to think about the ripple effects uh, and, and include other um, normative and social considerations as we make those policies? Well, um, certainly, I mean, there were a couple of uh, points that I wanted to get across or it came out of this work. One is that um, we, you know, there's reason to look at local policies as being important for um, 
opportunity in locations as opposed to abstracting quote unquote neighborhoods to the point of being being the policy. Like if we can just move people to better neighborhoods, then we solve the problem. Um, rather, what I show in this project is that, you know, the quality of neighborhoods or how, um, you know, high opportunity they are is itself a function of decisions of local governments and local residents. It's not some kind of fixed quality like the air or the soil that makes a place good for families or good for children. Um, and so that kind of relates to the second point is that um, it's worth investing in quote unquote place-based policies, not just these sort of um, let's give people housing vouchers so that they can move to better neighborhoods. Since we do know that there are these local ingredients that matter, if we kind of roll out policies that target those local ingredients, then we can potentially reach many more people than the tiny fraction of people that receive a voucher through a lottery system to move to a different neighborhood. And that would have, you know, targeting uh, places and local policies could have much larger effects on reducing inequality because of that. So how important is the idea of intergenerational mobility uh, when we talk about issues related to inequality? Do, do you view this, uh, especially the intergenerational wealth gap, as something missing from contemporary debates about inequality? Do you think uh, it, there, there's a lot of buzz about, you know, the, the wealth tax, you know, getting people to uh, start from the same starting line? How, how are those debated sort of related to, to uh, the discussion of inequality? So I think there ha fortunately has been a lot of talk of the many dimensions of inequality in the economics community. And um, there are many economists who are, who are focused on it. I think there's another question about how likely we are to see some of these studies and the conclusions from these studies actually enter uh, into the policy realm and see these policies enacted. Um, but in terms of... Um, the wealth gap, there's plenty of interesting material coming out on this. Now more work needs to be done. Um, I think it's clear, you know, if you look at the different gaps, whether it's income, wealth, or education, the wealth gap is is shocking. It's, it's large, it's orders of magnitude larger than income gaps um, and, and education gaps by race. So absolutely, we need to be thinking about this uh, because of the intergenerational effects. Um, and you know, when we get to talking about the coronavirus crisis, you know, this is a period when the economy shuts down, people have to rely on their reserves, and we have very unequal distribution in, in those reserves across the population. Uh, I, I want to quickly touch on another research that you've done, which is about how minimum wage laws affected the racial earning gaps between white people and black people. And uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about, about that research? Absolutely. So broadly, I'm interested in understanding the evolution of racial inequality in the U.S. in the 20th century. And um, there have been these big moments of change. Uh, I think the Great Migration was an important turning point in the promise of the North and, and where we've ended up today. Um, the other striking uh, you know, fact about racial inequality in the 20th century is that the earnings gap between black and white workers has been pretty much stagnant, um, flat for the last 50 years. 
And if you look back to, say, the last 70, 75 years, the gap had only really closed in one narrow 10-year period, approximately, between 1965 and 1975. Um, during that 10-year period, it closed in half. So it was a substantial drop in the racial earnings gap. Um, and I'm talking about the unadjusted gap, so not taking into account uh, differences in skill or education. But still, that unadjusted gap closed um, by a factor of two in just 10 years. So economists have puzzled over that um, fast period of racial convergence, what could have caused it. And of course, this is during the civil rights era. So people have pointed to improvements in relative uh, schooling for Black uh, students. They've also pointed to the um, anti-discrimination laws that were passed during this period. Um, well, my co-author, Claire Montialou, who's also at UC Berkeley, the two of us decided to take a different approach and, and look at a different policy that had basically been essentially overlooked in the economics of the racial earnings gap, which was minimum wage policy. In the late 60s, um, well, just kind of take a step back, the way the minimum wage was introduced in the U.S. during the New Deal was um, to only cover industries that the federal government had kind of prerogative over. And those were industries involved in interstate commerce. So to avoid kind of stepping on the toes of states and uh, intruding on their rights, that was kind of how the law was designed. Now, there was a whole political economy behind that um, and certainly a racial aspect of it where the Southern where Southern politicians fought very hard against a minimum wage that would affect uh, their industries, agriculture, services, et cetera. In the 60s, um, uh, there was an effort to then include industries that had been left out of coverage, and those included services, retail, and agriculture, laundries, hospitals, schools, et cetera. And those industries are ones where Black workers were overrepresented. They were rolled into coverage at a time when the federal minimum wage was reaching its peak in real terms. Um, the minimum wage in the late 60s is the highest real minimum wage that we've had in the U.S., period. Um, and so what that policy did was dramatically reduce. Uh, it, first of all, it benefited Black workers disproportionately because they were concentrated at the lower part of the earnings distribution. And it dramatically reduced the racial gap in, uh, in earnings. And we calculate and estimate that roughly 20% or a fifth, a full fifth of racial earnings convergence during this period was the minimum wage. Um, and that had been that missing piece of the puzzle had been essentially overlooked until, until now. Just quickly going back to your point, Elora, about uh, minorities working retail jobs, uh, a very immediate thought I have about the connection to today's uh, economy is that today we have automation and low-skilled labor uh, can be easily automated away in certain situations and an employer would have the incentive to autom automate away those retail jobs if minimum wage uh, were raised. Uh, so in that sense, uh, wouldn't ethnic and racial minorities today uh, be more likely to lose their jobs due to a raise in minimum wage nationally? I think that's a really interesting question, one that hasn't been directly looked at. When you think about the economy of the late 1960s, we had a situation where Black workers were really um, 
concentrated in certain jobs and had very little ability to move in other into other types of jobs. Employers simply wouldn't hire black workers into certain job title, you know, job positions. Um, and in that context, um, increasing the minimum wage basically prevented this mechanism of um, paying workers lower wages because they were in lower paying jobs. So if you were a custodian at a school, um, you're never going to earn what the teachers make. But uh, now being a custodian doesn't mean that you'll make you know, poverty wages uh, because there's a no, now a minimum wage introduced in that sector. So we think that that's why it had such large um, positive effects. Um, what this would look like today is an open question. We haven't seen an increase, a substantial increase in the federal minimum wage for over a decade. Um, and, you know, in real terms, it's lower than it was in the late 60s. Um, so, you know, I think we certainly see from um, major companies that, you know, when people bring up raises in the minimum wage that they're going to automate. We haven't seen uh, complete do job destruction yet on that front. But, uh, yeah, it's something to, to look at. Um, in the future. Well, I suppose it's been a long debate between whether, you know, raising the minimum wage would actually hurt or improve the lives of the um, working class people. And um, certain myths have been debunked. And I'm, I'm really happy to see much of the progress being made in, in that field. And I, yeah, I'm on that front, I would just mention that we did look at the employment effects of this um, reform, which again, imagine you're introducing a wage floor at the highest close to the highest level the minimum wage has ever been, and we observe close to zero effects on employment. Um, so it's really um, violates the kind of neoclassical theory and is much more in line with all the recent empirical evidence that there must be some degree of employer market power um, such that they are essentially setting a wage um, and setting a level of, of employment. And when you, imp when you impose a minimum wage in this context, um, you know, a model with employer wage setting power, the impacts of the minimum wage are ambiguous. And if wages are set below workers' marginal product, then a minimum wage can actually lead to positive effects or very minimal effects on employment. So that's very consistent with what we saw in the economy in the late 1960s, but it's also pretty consistent with what all the studies from the recent uh, couple of decades have shown as well. I'm just curious to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on uh, I guess the connection between your research on inequality and economic history and today's politics before we kind of pivot more into coronavirus. Uh, you know, we talked about um, some of the migration issues for, for minorities. We talked about uh, the wealth gap, the intergenerational earnings. We talked about racial earnings gap. We talked about minimum wage. How does your research kind of inform you to look at inequality issues today? Because there are so many scholars who have come out and say, uh, America's inequality is, is astonishingly bad right now, and there has to be sort of a bottoms up. Uh, a, you really got to change the system from the grounds up entirely in order to really guarantee people better lives. Do you have any thoughts on any sensible policies that you would advocate for in today's uh, political environment? So sometimes I give a very frustrating answer to this question, which is like, well, I need to write a few more papers and, and see. For example, in the context of the uh, Great Migration Project that I described, I document all the ways the Great Migration cities have transformed. But it's a lot harder for me to say, well, this much of the reduction in upward mobility comes from segregation and the housing market. This much comes from 
crime and the increase in crime and exposure, negative effects of being exposed to crime as a child. And then this piece comes from the policy decisions of local governments to deal with urban decay through police and incarceration. Um, based on you know where I see the effects loading uh, in in particular um, on Black men as a group in particular you know um, having much worse uh, outcomes in great migration cities, it suggests to me that we really do need to think about criminal justice policy um, and that great migration cities have been carrying out our national policy of mass incarceration. At least that's what it looks like. And so the more we experiment on that front in terms of reducing um, jail populations and prison populations, finding alternative modes of criminal justice, we should be looking at that and looking at the potential uh, side benefits in, in reducing inequality. Uh, so it, it seems that there's just so many issues to, to, talk, to talk about. Are, are you more of an optimist or, or pessimist, especially in times like such? Because a lot of people are saying coronavirus is sort of the springtime for pessimists when it comes to how it exposed some of the underlying fractures of American society. So there's a famous um, quote by um, Gramsci, who is an Italian um, communist, basically, and, and a political activist, <laughs> that um, one should have pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Um, and I interpret that, I think those are very wise words, which is that we need to have, um, we need to remove any rosy lenses when we're looking at the data and looking at uh, the condition of people's lives and also of our political system and what kind of policies are possible. At the same time, it's imperative to continually work towards finding solutions and uh, policies that could alleviate um, suffering and, and inequality. So um, I do think Part of that is through looking at how, you know, maybe not our federal policy at this moment in time, but state policy and local um, policy can be can go in different directions and can go towards reducing inequality. And we can think of that as our testing ground for, um, say, you know, places that have introduced higher minimum wages. We can look and see what is going to happen to inequality in those locations. We can look at places that have effectively implemented um, school desegregation programs and see if there are long run effects on a variety of dimensions. And there's work that's been looking at that. So we can take those lessons and kind of build up the body of evidence. And when we have the ability politically to implement them, we'll be ready with um, with the, the, you know, what what works, what actually works to uh, to alleviate uh, some of this inequality. So you recently gave a quick presentation uh, at a UC Berkeley webinar on uh, the economic impact of the coronavirus, uh, and you talked about how there are striking similarities between today's situation and World War II, um, and, and namely how consumer conduct production was also slow due to the benefit of the war effort back then, uh, and how now our economy is, is freezing. Uh, so I would love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on what exactly are the policy prescriptions that we can derived from this historical comparison, what are some of the policies that we can realistically implement during this crisis to alleviate uh, inequality? 
And I suppose there must be people saying uh, those are crises moments that uh, inequality issues should be, be put on the back burner and we need to address the public health crisis first. So I would love to get a little bit more of your thoughts on all those issues. Yeah, I'm happy to speak to, um, you know, connections and potential lessons from World War II. The first thing I would say is that, of course, these are very, very different historical moments. Um, it, during World War II, um, first of all, the, the crisis was the war. Um, and employment in war production skyrocketed. So employment actually went up. So I want to put that out there. And we're facing this economic crisis today, which is there's this health pandemic, this or, um, virus pandemic, and um, employment has plummeted by millions and millions so that we're approaching 25% unemployment uh, potentially by the summer. Okay, so what, what could we possibly learn from World War II? Well, one important similarity is that um, the constraint faced in World War II was that in order to rise to the challenges of the war and to for the government to divert enough effort into war production, production for civilian purposes, for civilian consumption had to be wound down to a minimum. And basically, you know, you could spend infinitely on the war, anything that you devote to civilian consumption is taking away from the war effort. So that was kind of the, the challenge being faced. Um, and the, the big question was, how do you um, pay for the war? And um, John Maynard Keynes, who was, who was a British economist, uh, writing a, about how governments should rise to this challenge, very you know, strikingly said, we should not take this crisis as a moment to postpone, to postpone necessary reforms in terms of addressing inequality. We should go further than we would have done in peacetime. And what sets apart a free and democratic state is when the pie is fixed necessarily, because now we are dealing with a wartime economy, production is wound down, a free and democratic state has an overwhelming concern about how that fixed pie is distributed. An unfree state might say, we can just devote everything to the war effort and not care about who is suffering at home. Um, so his response was, we should increase um, tax, the tax rate. We should institute a steeply progressive tax. We should um, tax excess profits by any companies that are actually benefiting from the wartime economy. Um, we should provide a universal basic income, and we should create basically incentives for workers to save whatever money they're making in war production or through universal basic income so that when we come out of the war, we have an ec economic boom. And, you know, roughly that kind of matches what happened. Savings rates went way up during World War II. Um, tax rates were made steeply progressive, um, the most progressive they've been uh, probably in the whole 20th century. And the period after the war was a time of reduced inequality, unlike anything we've really seen um, over the last 100 plus years. So we kind of face this, a choice in this moment, were we to invest even more in disadvantaged, low income and poor communities that is actually a payment into our recovery. Um, the less people go under now, the more they'll be able to spend when we can resume kind of normal operations. Um, and we could also even think about the war effort here is the um, effort in at 
effort to control the virus, right? So one could imagine diverting um, workers and increasing employment in healthcare and in the kind of test and trace industry uh, to, to get the virus under control. So I think there are a lot of positive analogies that could be drawn from this period um, if we had the sort of political will to, to make that happen. Uh, do you think there is a consensus among economists today regarding how economic policy should be conducted in, in such times? Uh, because many of the measures that you talked about are kind of expansionary measures, you know, granting UBI, having more progressive taxes. Uh, I suppose there would be economists who would disagree with that. And certainly a lot of uh, political scientists would disagree with that. Libertarians would say uh, we're very worried about the expansion of big government, especially during wartime and crisis time. So I would say that actually there's just remarkable consensus among economists from across the political <laughs> spectrum on what needs to be done now. Um, and that includes, first and foremost, tackling the health crisis through that, that you know, there is no economy without health. Um, so no trade off, the notion of a trade off between the economy and health is a false one, we need to get the pandemic under control. Um, and second, we need to um, we need to provide for workers who are being told to stay at home in order to preserve um, public health. Um, there are debates on how best to do that, but I actually think uh, a large number of economists feel that something that's similar to what's being implemented in certain European countries, uh, for example, the UK, um, I believe Germany, um, Denmark to keep workers on their payroll and have the government provide all or a portion of that paycheck. Um, programs like that would aid our recovery because there would be less you know, of this issue of rematching workers to jobs. Right now, that's not really the path the US has taken. And it's a huge question. When we come out of this, are people gonna be matched to their employers or will some large fraction of employers have gone under and those jobs are just gone, or for whatever reason, people aren't able to rematch uh, to their to their former jobs. I'm so glad to hear that there is actually consensus among uh, at least economists regarding uh, the economic policy going forward, because it does seem that our political system could seem slightly dysfunctional, even in moments like this, that there is not a, a sense of social solidarity traditional in American um, culture, uh, unlike a place like Germany, you know, pe people in America have this kind of uh, strive for freedom or this libertarian uh, will sometimes. Uh, so maybe just a very general question. How do you think America is doing right now in terms of being aware of inequality issues, discussing inequality issues, and actually implementing sensible measures to address them? Do you think we are making progress? Um, so I think in terms of public opinion, um, there's a lot of consensus on, for example, maybe healthcare shouldn't be tied to your employment status, seems to be a liability in a time like this. Um, so, you know, based on polling, it seems like the majority of Americans think that, you know, universal healthcare would be a better path forward. Um, and I do think there's also broad consensus on raising the minimum wage, on all of these things. So I wouldn't say the hang up is there. I think people are ready 
um, for policies that benefit them because we've seen a steady erosion of the quote unquote middle class over the last, um, you know, 30, 40, even 50 years. Um, I think the real question is uh, at, at a national level, will we have the political um, uh, will or the politicians in place who would want to carry out those kinds of policies? Um, and, you know, even though you have the majority of public opinion kind of supporting policies that reduce inequality, even over this last um, four months, you know, the wealth of the very wealthy has actually increased. So there are companies that are actually benefiting from the pandemic. Um, probably the most salient is Amazon and Jeff Bezos, whose wealth has increased dramatically over the last four months. So <laughs> it's just like there's this divergence between what's happening in terms of inequality and what people, the vast majority of people would like to see happen. And how do we bring those back together? I, I'm not sure. Uh, before we end the interview, I also want to just quickly hear your thoughts. What are you reading right now? Uh, what would you recommend to our listeners who want to learn more about in economic inequality in America? What are some of the in interesting readings or articles or, or intellectuals that we should follow? Sure. Um, so one thing I am reading now is um, a recent book by my uh, soon-to-be colleagues at UC Berkeley. It's called The Triumph of Injustice. And it looks at U.S. tax policy and how the wealthy and high earners have basically captured the tax system. Um, and so now today, the average American pays a higher effective tax rate than the wealthiest Americans. Um, I think that book is a great place to start when we look around us um, at the world today and say, how are we going to get out of the the pits that we're in right now. And there is a source of revenue that is being completely missed out on um, through, through a wealth tax and uh, a more progressive uh, tax system overall. And um, we're going to need that. We're going to be facing challenges economically that involve a huge level of investment um, to face the climate challenge and retool the economy to ensure kind of, you know, thinking of inequality as a real vulnerability in the face of crises, we need to invest in reducing inequality. And all of that is going to cost money, but there's a source of money that's been completely untapped and just rising and rising. And so I think that book is a great place to start. They also have an interactive tool on their website. I think it's called um, Tax Justice Now, something like this. Um, so that's one place to start. I also spend a lot of time reading uh, historical sometimes historical fiction. Um, I'm a big fan, for example, of Octavia Butler's work. She has a book called Kindred, which is basically just um, representing actual U.S. history and slavery as the kind of science fiction, you know, a fiction of horror, and um, really brings to the forefront the context. And I do a lot of work on historical data where we're so far removed from people's stories. So I like to go and, and read these books. Another one that I recently read that ties into my interest in housing um, markets and discrimination is this book called The Street by Anne Petrie. And it was the first book to sell over a million copies um, by a Black woman. And it was written in the um, 40s and set in Harlem. And it's all about the struggles of a young Black woman trying to um, not get constantly cheated in the rental market. You know, um, we have 
documented evidence that Black families are basically pay higher rents for the same quality housing historically in U.S. cities. So these are the kinds of things I read to get some texture into my research. And inequality is so enduring that whether we're studying, you know, the history of slavery and its economic effects or of um, redlining or segregated housing markets, these are still questions that are relevant today and to, um, to inequality today. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and at the very end, since the name of our show is called Policy Punchline, I want to ask you, what is your punchline for our audience today? Uh, it could be about your research on inequality and economic history. It could be your thoughts on the COVID-19 crisis. It could be anything. So I would say the punchline is that reducing inequality should be seen as a form of social insurance um, to help us as we go into the rest of this century where we're undoubtedly going to face other large negative shocks, um, whether they're health, pan you know, um, pandemics and health crises or uh, crises related to climate change. So we really need to change the way we're thinking about inequality as a form of um, strengthening everyone um, and not just, you know, some kind of transfer to the quote unquote undeserving poor um, this is really about the health of our society overall. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. And, and thanks so much for bringing the, the encouraging messages, uh, such as, you know, be pessimist in your intellect, but be optimistic in your will. And those are the, the crises are the times that we should make large strides forward for addressing inequality. So thanks so much for, for joining me today, Laura. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, if you would like to learn more about Elora's work, please go visit her uh, website, uh, look her up, read her papers. It's fascinating. It's not too hard for our listeners to understand. And, and follow us on policypunchline.com and, and uh, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, and such. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.